Julian Fellows is the Academy Award-winning screenplay writer and the Emmy Award-winning creator of Downton Abbey. He also sits next to me on the Tory benches in the House of Lords. Julian, is it fair to say that most of your books and films are set in the past and so history plays an important part in your work? Um, who taught you history? Um, I had various history teachers, actually, uh, of differing talents, but my interest in history started quite a long time before that. Uh, I, I started to get a sense that other lives, different lives, had been lived by my relatives and by other people generally, uh, and only shortly before I was born. In other words, I'd only just missed an era of which there were many relics lying around in every drawer and every cupboard. And uh, I, where I was very, very lucky is I got interested in all this stuff when I was still quite a child. And as a result, my great aunts and things were still alive. And uh, my eldest great aunt, who was born in 1880, presented in 1898 and married and living her whole life before the First World War, I knew her really well. She only died when I was 21. And so when you were writing Downton, which is about 1912 to 1926, I mean, this was, this was as it were, something that you had actually discussed with, um, with close relatives. Yes, and, and it was something I had discussed and something I knew well. Uh, and that was extraordinary, really. I mean, it was also infuriating for my brothers because, of course, a lot of these aunts who had no children gave me all the family stuff they'd still got because I was the one who was interested. They weren't at all interested until they were about 40, and by then it was too late. But, <laughs> but it was interesting. I mean, two of my aunts were sent out, one of my great um, great great uncles was um, governor of Bombay for the Durbar of 1911 when, when um, King George and Queen Mary went out and they landed in Bombay and he went to the Durbar and everything and they went out to stay with him as part of the fishing fleet you know when uh, those girls used to arrive to try and find a husband and I mean I was talking to people who lived it and that was rather extraordinary, actually. And I had a sense of that then. Uh, and, a, you know, an interest in family history spread into an interest in history generally. And, uh, and that was how I started. And I had a very, very vivid moment, which I never forgotten. I was at my pre-prep when I suppose I was about seven, probably six or seven. And there was a, a poster on the wall of uh, Mary Stewart kneeling before a block. I don't think a school would do that now. When no, 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 it's for the sensitivity people would uh, would have a thing or two to say about uh, Oh, my God, about they'd that. all change. <laughs> but I, I said, who is this? And whoever it was said, oh, well, that's Mary, Queen of Scots. And I said, but is she being, she being beheaded? Uh, and they said, yes. And the strange sort of anomaly of a queen kneeling before a block to have her head cut off was so vivid an image and so struck me that I never forgot that. And when I got to my prep school a year later uh, and I was in the school library, I, I saw a biography of Mary Stewart and I took it out and read it. 
And looking back, of course, I was on the way, really. Um, and of course, the two things about that that's so memorable about that uh, execution is one, the little dog that that rushes out from under her skirts uh, after the head's been chopped off. And then the executioner lifting up her, her red head. Um, and of course, it's a wig and she's actually grey haired and the, and, the, and the head falls to the ground. That's also something that I don't think that says sensitivity people would uh, necessarily concentrate on terribly much today. You're, no, they wouldn't you're, like it. No, they tried to get the dog to drink her blood, you know. <laughs> now that is where your fiction takes over from the fact but I'm the certain of that. I'm certain of that. No, no, no. I'm not going down that route, uh, Julian. The, uh, your father, who was a diplomat during World War II, and that's all, obviously also uh, steeped in history, um, he uh, campaigned to have the Emperor Haile Selassie res- restored to his throne. Tell us about yes. that. What an incredible thing and also about your birth in Cairo and and you know in a sense you are sort of a a personal link to the end of empire aren't you well yes I mean I think we are my my uh, father was recruited um, to be part of this very small group who were given the job of getting Haile Selassie back onto the throne of Ethiopia because Mussolini had put in a puppet king who was uh, you know his creation, uh, whereas the British, of course, wanted Haile Selassie back, who was an ally. Uh, and it was wonderfully English in the way it was run. I mean, they all uh, referred to him as Mr. Smith, but they had to call him Your Majesty or Sir, which I rather like. Um, <laughs> and, and in fact, rather touchingly, um, years later, Haile Selassie's son, uh, the crown prince, uh, gave my father a posthumous award for his work during the war. Um, and, and in fact, it, my father's very impressed by Haile Selassie, actually. Uh, and of course, you know, very sad at the way it ended. Yes. Rastafari, of course, as he was in the, um, in the original. I think that makes your father an original Rastafarian. Um, does it not? Not that uh, you know it. <laughs> you said of your father in a wonderful quote that he was one of the last generation who lived in a pat of butter without knowing it. Now tell me what you meant by that. <laughs> well, of course, in those days, I mean, I know we, our generation, or not us, I think the younger generation, has this propensity for judging earlier uh, people in history by our standards and not their own. And so they are always disliking someone who in 1472 didn't agree with a rent rebate, you know. Uh, <laughs> it, it's all mad to me. But um, one has to remember that women were really differently conditioned until comparatively recently. And uh, in those days, I mean, now my mother was a very clever, very good looking woman, uh, and she would have had a proper career. Uh, she certainly was capable of it. Uh, and and uh, that would have been that. But in those days, it just wasn't seen as a real option. She was allowed by my grandmother to, to help 
some of Norman Marshall, was it someone, I can't remember, uh, in one of the club theatres, in the Gate Theatre. But she wasn't allowed to go on stage. He wanted her, she was very pretty, he wanted her to go on stage. Uh, and uh, she wasn't allowed to do that, you know. And so by the time she married, I mean, she was 22 or whatever, by the time she married, she was geared to the idea that her job was to make my father's life incredibly easy. And that's exactly what <laughs> she did. And yeah. I never forget once she was um, doing something in, you know, working clothes, painted clothes. And, um, and I suppose I was about 10 or something. And she looked at the clock and she said, oh my God, I'm on duty in 10 minutes. And she rushed off and came back in a little black cocktail frock with stilettos and her hair done and everything as my father walked in through the front door yep. because that was her perception of her own job. That really is. And, you know, one of the odd things about getting older is you realise you have lived in the end through three or four quite distinct periods uh, of just of clothes and of thinking and of music and of political changes and all the rest of it. And, and, you know, and that is true of me. You went up to Magdalen College, Cambridge after Ampleforth. Did the historic uh, surroundings of Cambridge help um, help make you fall in love, give you a, a love of history? It certainly was very powerful for me being at that university. Or were you too busy with the footlights and and doing all the things that you did? No, I think I was very um, affected by the beauty of my surroundings. I mean, Magdalen. Uh, the, the bit on the, the sort of main block is very beautiful quadrangle, and behind it, he had um, Samuel Pepys's library, which had been uh, bequeathed to the college at some point. And all of that I found very effective. I didn't study history to this day. I don't know why not. Uh, and I was studying English literature, but of course, English literature and history overlap each other uh, a great deal. And so um, it wasn't as illogical as you might think. But no, I think I was very affected. Also, one of the things about history uh, that I think I was helped into by talking to my great aunts about what the First World War was like and how did they feel when the Romanovs collapsed and all that sort of thing, is that people in history are real people. And I think when the teaching is not so good or, or children are not encouraged to talk to their much older relations, they, they can get a sense that somehow people in the past were different and sort of didn't have the same responses. And you, you'll hear people say, well, of course, child death, infant mortality was very common. It means the same and this kind of thing. Of course it meant the same it's just they didn't know how to stop it yes uh, and uh, in in so many situations their emotions are very like our own they have different attitudes different beliefs in in you know people's roles and all the rest of it but when you get down to the basic stuff falling in love not wanting to die understanding you are going to die losing children bringing up children, you have to go pretty far back before you're not dealing with something reasonably familiar. I think that's right. And also, uh, of course, the further back you go, the less familiar it is. Um, 
the 17th century um, interest in and indeed obsession with religion and all the various different types of um, of uh, sects of um, the Christian faith in um, in the West is something that it's quite difficult for historians to get their minds around. You know, if you're an Anabaptist, you're a completely different uh, um, thing from an Armenian, for example, in the uh, in the Christian Church. Um, but otherwise, yeah, normal um, uh, normal human emotions haven't changed that much in the last. Uh, Five ten thousand years, have they? No, and and I would go further and say that we are now living in an era where people have these beliefs uh, and insist that anyone who doesn't agree with them is evil, is wrong, is bad, and that is a real. Well, that was the. Ne- I was going to say real, that was my next question. Sorry, Karen. It's a real illustration of how people were thinking in the 17th century. You weren't just, you know, oh dear, she's marrying a Catholic and that would be the end of it. I can say that because I am a Catholic, but um, it was a real active, vivid hatred of these people. And when you look at some of the stuff that's going on at the moment, the extraordinary refusal to accept that there is any value in someone else's point of view uh, is really very 17th century. In 1981, um, you moved to LA and um, you played uh, a series of TV roles, including Tales of the Unexpected. And that brings me on, of course, to the Roald Dahl um, controversy. For our non-British listeners, um, let me explain. Sensitivity readers were told by the publishers, Puffin, to excise the words from Roald Dahl's children's book. Words like fat and ugly and white and black and female and men were all cut out um, as a way of ensuring that children weren't offended. Classic censorship. It's got overtones of uh, of George Orwell in 1984, hasn't it? Um, how did you feel when you when you heard about this, having actually acted in one of his, uh, Roald Dahl's uh, um, shows? Yes, I was rather shocked at Penguin. Actually, uh, I thought they were better than that. And uh, well, they're my, they're my publishers for several of my books, so I'm not going to lay in. But you're, of course, uh, I mean, I, the I very shocked. fact this is done for by ch- for the for children's books as well um, makes it all all the weirder, really, doesn't it? It's it's a horrible kind of mind controlling uh, absolutism that uh, I disliked very very much. And I also once they've rewritten Roald Dahl, what's to stop them rewriting? Charlotte Bronte. I mean, why don't they get stuck into Henry Fielding? Where where does it end? Well, they're changing Ian Fleming uh, at the moment. The uh, the James Bond. Um... Yes, and I disapprove of that. Yes, I because I, d- I don't mind if you're adapting Ian Fleming for the screen and you're making something new out of it. You're creating a new thing. Then I think you're entitled to make it work for a new audience. But to fiddle with a published book is just censorship. Absolutely. Thank you. Tell me, um, is it fair to say that you've tended, um, because of your background, to get upper class roles? I I remember you um, playing George IV, not once, but twice. And you played the Duke (laughs) of of, uh, Richmond in Aristocrats and so on. Do, Do you... 
sort of mind that. Have you ever had a desperate um, desire to play a poverty-stricken Scottish coal miner, or or, or did you do that in your um, uh, earlier in your um, career? I did it a bit because I was in rep. I mean, when I started out, the, the, the natural order was for you to act in rep or reps. Uh, and try and work your way into London and television and the West End and so on. Um, I don't think uh, I resented ever being given a job. <laughs> uh, that was the challenge. <laughs> and, uh, you know, on the whole, anything that... Be I mean, I don't believe that um, you have to... You can only act someone who has the same lived experience as you. And I think that would have done us out of a great many wonderful performances uh, by actors who were, I mean, where does it end? Can you not play a murderer if you've never killed someone? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> How does it finish? Because we don't really know what it feels like to kill someone. We don't. We have approximates and we read things and we try to decide what's it like to be a king? I don't know. Uh, and, and you know, if you can only play uh, a king if you are a king, then that's going to limit a lot of Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean, it, it all seems a bit bonkers to me. The fact is, some people who come from quite modest backgrounds can play toffs very convincingly, uh, and others can't. But I mean, I had another friend who was an actress who was the daughter of a peer, and she didn't get a job because she wasn't posh enough. So <laughs> there's no logic to any of it. Um, I, I think you do what you can do. And I always remember Betty Davis saying, the actor who isn't typecast doesn't work. And it, where I think she was absolutely right, and where I would say the Americans have an understanding of this, as an industry that the British do not, is the moment a British actor has a hit, he gets his first real film part, whatever it is, and it's a great success, will be he immediately, the next job, he wants to play, uh, you know, a heavy dramatic role in which he murders the heroine, uh, you know, because the first one was a romantic comedy. Completely wrong. And what it, what it means is that the audience doesn't trust you. They don't know what you're going to come up with next, and they don't like that. What they want is to know they're going to enjoy your films. So with an American actor, they get their first break, and the first three or four films will all be quite similar in terms of their role. Then they have come to have a kind of pseudo relationship with you, and they start to trust you. And then they will allow you to do something a bit different. And they'll think, well, if he thinks he can manage this, I'll give him a go. But initially, you must build that relationship, which is something that in the old days, the studios understood very clearly. And they would hire a writer to write a vehicle, literally, for Lana Turner or for Rita Hayworth or whatever, so that whoever loved her in Gilda would love her in this. Whoever loved her in, in Imitation of Life would love her in this. And then, finally, you're allowed to be, you know, have a bit more variety. Fascinating. The um, mention of class, of course, brings us on to Downton Abbey, your hugely successful and critically acclaimed um, drama. Six series, 52 episodes, takes us through this uh, upper-class family um, 
and the people who work uh, for it in Yorkshire from 1912 to 1926. Numerous accolades. Um, The thing I enjoyed about it was that it was obviously written by somebody who loved history because you try to make it as historically accurate as possible. Is that because you... um, specifically researched a good deal, or is it just that you have read a lot of history and and love the subject and and want to um, uh, and feel that a historical drama is better if it's accurate? Um, that's lots of questions in one. Yes, sorry, but you know what it is. It's summed up. Can I sum it up with a fabulous um, uh, poem? that uh, I'm not sure, is it a uh, Clarehue? It might be a Clarehue. I'm sure you've heard it before. Cecil B. DeMille, rather against his will, was persuaded to leave Moses out of the Wars of the Roses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there is, I mean, do do viewers care or mind um, where, whether you're historically accurate or not? Yes, I do care. And I do my best to be historically accurate, but not so as it will constrain the narrative. What I try to do is to find narratives that will work without uh, doing things that are unhistorical. And what I also feel is that the audience gets into your rhythm. And so uh, they will understand that, no, in, in 1893, the respectable daughter of a Yorkshire landowner would not strip off and jump into bed at a moment's notice. It wasn't like the 1960s. The fear of a lot of program makers can be, but I've been pretty lucky in this, can be that a modern audience, which always means a young audience, it doesn't mean a living audience, it means a young audience, will not understand that in different periods, people thought differently about things. And of course, certain movements of our own time seem to imply this because they get so cross about people who 200 years ago did things that were quite normal, but wouldn't be normal today. Uh, But I don't think you have to feel that. I think the audience is perfectly capable of understanding that things were seen differently because particularly an audience over 30 has lived through things being seen differently. And, uh, you know, uh, never mind the clothes we wore in the 1970s, quite a few of the attitudes we wouldn't wear now. And, and, And I think they can follow you in a period drama, which for me is important that you give them predicaments that would be truthful at that time and are not simply a modern predicament overlaid. That for me is just dressing up box drama. People put on crinolines and say modern things. And it's not what I'm after really. And it strikes me also that you um, you don't speak down to your audience um, historically in that you you expect them to know a certain amount about the Titanic, a certain amount about the suffragettes or the general strike or whatever. You know, it's, it's not sort of ladled on like some um, shows do that assume absolute total ignorance on behalf of the of the viewer. 
Um, has has that has that well obviously that attitude has come off because you've done six series and had millions upon millions of viewers and so on and won the Academy Award and everything. But have you um, found that not speaking down to the audience pays dividends? It works for me, and what, and I think it works particularly uh, in the era of the internet because what I do is I use a scandal like a real scandal, like the Teapot Dome scandal, which I used to get Robert to go to America at one point to help his brother. Now, the Teapot Dome scandal was a real scandal. It was a government scandal that affected the American government very badly and went right to the heart of it. I'm not going to spend an hour and a half of Downton explaining this. What I hope they take from that is, because it's me, it's probably true, because I've given a name to it. And if they're interested, they can type in Teapot Dome Scandal into their computer, wiki, and get the story. But what I feel is that when, you know, we talk about something in the news, we don't go back to basics every time we mention it and go back to the root. We just refer to some drama that's going on at the moment, some scandal, some murder, some political impasse, of which we've seen so many recently, um, and, and we know what we're talking about. And I think you give the audience just enough so they can understand this was a thing of the day or this was a, uh, a political something, like that, so that they know what's going on. They don't, after all, need the detail. I remember at the very beginning um, of Downton, uh, there was a sort of panic among some involved in it that the word entail had been used because nobody <laughs> knew what an entail was. And yet it was vital and to it, everything to do with the upper classes for 500 years. <laughs> they've lived on entails. And, and so anyway, it's hysterical. We couldn't do the entail. Nobody can have a word. You couldn't have a hit show with the word entail in it. And finally, I said to them, look, you don't understand this. The audience doesn't need to know what an entail is. What they need to know is that for reasons which seem unfair and unjust, Cora's money is going to be lost. Now, they understand that. They get the fact that she's done nothing wrong, but her money is not going to go to her daughters. And, and that's all they need to know. And they become indignant, and that's terrible. And that's enough. You in, in any story, you think, what does the audience need to know to follow this story? And you'd be surprised by the if you went once you pare it down. And have you found also, um, and I think this is another great argument for the kind of shows that you make, that it switches people onto history, that people then try and find out what Entail is about, that they, of course, uh, famously visit the lovely High Clare Castle um, to uh, to see where um, a lot of Downton has been filmed, that they actually become more interested in history because of the show rather than being interested in the show because of an interest in history? Yes, I very much hope so. I mean, this is one of my uh, main aspirations, uh, that a show like Downton, I hope, can give a sense that history is a place where interesting things happened and interesting people lived. 
And, uh, and once they got that, then whether or not they're reading Georgette Heyer or the Duke de Saint-Simon is immaterial to me. I, I just want them to have a sense that everything we are and everything we have become is a product of our own history. And, and the more you know about history, the more you can see how it all happened and how we got to where we are. Are you worried, therefore, um, that the teaching of history in schools at the moment seems to be smaller and smaller? It's basically Henry to Hitler, uh, the Tudors and the Nazis, very little in between and and on either side of that, that um, children are able to drop history much earlier now than they were, that fewer people are taking history as a... Uh, as a subject to university. Is, is that either A, a terrible thing which is going to be disastrous for society, or B, a rather good thing for people like you and me who sell history books and, and history programs because there is an innate <laughs> fascination for and a need for and a and a and a um, hunger and a thirst for history. And therefore, um, actually it's going to be uh, it's going to be good news commercially that they're being starved of it at school and university yes i think um enormously important as my own success obviously is and mine i'm not sure <laughs> i'm not sure it's quite as important as that um i think it, for me it's sad that children are no longer given any kind of linear narrative I mean, you quite rightly say it's Henry VIII and his six wives and Goebbels. There's more or less nothing else. And, and the whole 18th century, when in America, Europe, Britain, certainly, almost every major institution was either shaped or created, and most of which we are, are still integral parts of government, uh, nothing is taught about that at all. Nothing at all. You just go from the Tudors to the early 20th century, more or less, with a little bit of Victoria thrown in. Exactly. I mean, I, there are plenty of theories about this. One of them, of course, as I'm sure you know, is that the left distrusts history because the left doesn't come out of history terribly well. It's very difficult to point at a revolution that has been a great success, and they would rather history was filled with tremendously successful revolutions uh, because, of course, the French Revolution put the economy of France back three quarters of a century at least. And you could say more or less the same about all the others. And that is one theory as to why people don't want history studied anymore. They want people to feel empowered to tackle the new and not to feel limited by what hasn't worked in the past. I kind of see that, actually. I don't want to sound too extremist, but I know that if I was a left-wing Marxist, I would not point people towards history books. I would point them towards the future. And that might be one of the reasons that we don't have the 17th century uh, taught very much in uh, in schools, in that it tells you about the the what happens when you abolish the House of Lords, for example. Uh, what happens when you get rid of the monarchy? It's a uh, it's a sort of um, warning for the for the present, isn't it? Yes, 
Can I um, ask you something else that I find very politically incorrect about uh, Downton and one of, one of the reasons that I think it's so wonderful um, and, and shocking to modern sort of woke sensibility? And that is that far from being the lazy, exploitative, evil capitalists, overall, the British upper classes of the early 20th century um, were concerned paternalists. They believed in noblesse oblige, this concept in its best sense of the responsibilities of the privileged towards those less well off in uh, than themselves in society, um, something that has a direct lineal descent from the chivalric tradition of the Middle Ages. Is that fair, or am I looking? Am I seeing too much politics in uh, in Downton there? No, I think that uh, it's truthful that that was the model. Of course, not everyone lived up to it, but on the whole. It was sold to, I would say, more than the upper classes, certainly the middle and upper classes, that their job was to make sure society was happy and healthy and busy and thing and positive. Uh, and that was seen as their role. Uh, the English always thought the French had made a great mistake separating them for the upper classes from their lands, from their responsibilities. And in the end, by 1789, they really only saw their land as income. They had very little uh, emotional relationship with it. And in fact, to be sent to your estates by the king was the maximum punishment in Versailles. Uh, and you were considered a sort of uh, nothing until you were allowed back. We never had that. We didn't have the whole upper class living around the court and, you know, and the Georgians, of course, the court was incredibly boring. So apart from doing a sort of union minimum of court balls and things, most people preferred to lark about London and go to large houses and have a jolly time. But it did mean there was much more uh, interaction and also, of course, uh, it, it is fashionable now always to depict anyone upper middle or upper class as horrible. Uh, and it, you very seldom get a sympathetic character. Whereas I grew up with these people. And of course, you know, some of them were horrible, but most of them were, were perfectly normal. Which is why this, this figure, the Earl of Grantham, played by Hugh, Hugh Bonneville, the, the sort of uh, central aristocrat in uh, Downton, is a tremendously um, attractive figure. He's, he's somebody who has this sense of noblesse oblige in every in his body, it strikes me. Yes, I mean, he's, he's not terribly clever. <laughs> you can't ask everything for the aristocracy, Julian. <laughs> yes. He's not terribly clever. He's really based on my father, but my father was a much cleverer man. But what Grantham has got that my father had was a, a wish to do good, a wish to do well and do their duty, but never any real questioning of the shape of society that had placed them in the position they were in. There are no doubts keeping them awake at night. That, that's just not part of it. And I think that is also fairly truthful of a great many, that, that um, it, it, philosophers who want to challenge the, the morals of a divided society and a, a class-structured society and so on, uh, are tackling it in a way that most of the participants don't. I wouldn't say none, actually, but most. Yeah, absolutely. But you did have, uh, we, we mentioned earlier, um, or at least you mentioned the Durba. We 
did have in the earlier Derber, um, Lord Curzon, who was one of the most intelligent men of his generation at the very top of society. There seemed to be a way um, that politics in the House of Commons and, and the House of Lords managed to sort of squeeze out quite a lot of the thick people um, by the time you got to, to cabinet rank, at least in the uh, early 20th century, late 19th century. Would you go along with that? Well, I would, because this is where, you know, every reform has another blade and you gain this, but you lose that. And this is something that reformers are never alert to, but others are. And one of the things of being governed by uh, an upper class, largely, who were rich and whose status and way of life did not depend on their political careers. They, they were doing politics as a matter of duty uh, and honoring their birth responsibilities and, and so on. Uh, and of course, this meant that on the whole, uh, there was no other motive. I mean, the Marquis of Salisbury was no greater a figure after he'd been prime minister than before. He, he was the same guy. Uh, and well, you couldn't get grander than the Marquis of Salisbury to begin with, whatever you did, really. <laughs> and I'm sure he refused a dukedom. But um, I, I think it's, it is important to realise that our generation has taken away private incomes from all these jobs. They're, they're now uh, more representative of a wider group of people and they bring more understanding, I'm sure, in various areas. But their motives are, you know, more complicated. When you've got a government faced with almost certain defeat at the next election, uh, a great many of them are having to think God, what am I going to do now? How do I make up the difference? What, what am I going to make the next chunk of my career? Crikey. Whereas, you know, people right up to the age of Churchill and beyond could cross the floor without any cost in their social status or financial income. It made no difference at all. Uh, and that, I think, does alter politics. And uh, mind you, I mean... Uh, I don't agree with everything the Prime Minister does, but I, I think he's pretty untainted by uh, financial ambition or whatever, because he's got a lot of money, and that's the advantage of it. Well, it certainly means you know he's not going to bother being corrupt. <laughs> he's not going to be corrupt. He's not. That helps he, enormously. He, he couldn't afford the level of corruption he'd have to have. <laughs> Now, so, I, uh, with all of my guests, uh, Julian, I ask, um, I ask what book they're reading, what history or biography they're reading. I, it, it slightly assumes that they're reading a biography or history book at the time, but I like to think that all of my guests do. So, uh, so what's yours? I'm reading a sort of group biography at the moment, which is called Snow Widows and was written by Catherine McInnes. I don't think it's been out all that long. Uh, and it's really an account of Scott of the Antarctic and the failed, in a way, I'm afraid, Antarctic mission that ended up with the deaths of all the final group. Uh, and it's largely, not entirely, but largely through the eyes of the women they left behind. And they found all, you know, they all wrote last letters to their wives yes. and mothers. Uh, which were found much later uh, and delivered. 
but um, they've got all of those and the diaries of the women themselves and the diaries and accounts of Scott uh, and his group. I mean, they had a larger group initially and they were sort of going back to England in stages, but only about five of them made it to the pole, uh, only to discover that Amundsen had got there first and had been there a month before. Captain Oates was at my old college at uh, Cambridge, Gonville Keys. Oh, really? Yes, well, that's one of the one of the bravest stories of uh, of English history, I think, when he walks out very, and uh, very deliberately commits suicide in order to give enough food for I the may be gone for some time. Wonderful words. And what about your what if? What uh, What's your counterfactual? I've got one or two what ifs, really. I think um, if President Wilson hadn't been so resolutely a Republican and convinced that the American way of life was exportable, he might have been possible to avoid the massive political vacuum that he created by throwing out the German emperor and the Austrian emperor and various others besides, because it left in Central Europe a complete gap. And in fact, uh, the tragedy of it is that if he had got rid of the German emperor uh, and had a regency under the crown princess for her children, uh, then the, the whole thing could have slid on as a constitutional monarchy with no trouble. And the particularly sad one is uh, the emperor of Austria, Karl, because he inherited halfway through the First World War. And in every part of him, he was infinitely more sympathetic to the Allies than he was to the belligerent Germans. And if he had been the emperor before the war, I think uh, he might have tried to stay out of it or indeed align himself differently. I remember um, seeing the, uh, um, the coffin of the Empress Zita, um, who was Karl's widow, um, who didn't die until 1990. So it's an... Ex no, I was in Vienna yes. just after she died and I went down into the vault of the Capuchin. I was there too, uh, with the with the wonderful red and white uh, carnations that were all over uh, all over there, that uh, the entire Habsburg family are uh, buried down there. And, and people praying and crying when I was you know, there. It was a uh, I thought powerful, was powerful moment. Yeah. And one thinks when one thinks also of um of archdukes, or the various archdukes, but um but uh, Otto and others who would have made um, uh, very impressive uh, political figures in, uh, and of course they would, if they had um, had the uh, wherewithal and the national prestige, managed to, uh, including in Germany, um, stop the rise of the Nazis. Yes, yes, I don't. I think, think that's a, that. I, it's pretty much as good a what I it. Don't think President Wilson <laughs> considered that when you have a political vacuum. It is invariably filled. And usually filled by something an awful lot worse than what you um, have before. Yes. On that excellent conservative um, assumption, all, as Lord Salisbury, who you mentioned earlier, said, all changes for the worse. Um, why I'm going to bring this uh, podcast to a close. Thank you so much, um, Julian, for a fascinating conversation. No, I'm delighted. Thanks very much. Thank you very much to Lord Fellows. Join me on the next Secrets of Statecraft when my guest will be Alexander Downer, the longest serving foreign minister in the history of Australia.
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.